I'm Kevin Richardson. I'm with One Link International. You heard the little blurb I gave earlier. Um, before doing that, I was the campus uh, director at the University of Michigan and Eastern Michigan University for 31 years. Um, about a year and a half ago, switched to this new role of mission mobilization for college students. I had worked with One Link for over 20 years as a volunteer, so I wasn't like new, but now full, being full time is new. And uh, I love missions, I love college students, so it was a great, great fit. And then my wife took over my old job as campus director. So we still minister to college students at the University of Michigan. Uh, but I do the one link stuff now full time. <clears throat> um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. And I do pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us uh, what you want us to know and learn from you. Uh, we commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I got a question for you. I'm assuming that most of you, or maybe all of you, want to share your faith with people, friends, family, other students. Uh, so the question is, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to share your faith? Anybody? Must have a reason, right? Yeah, go for it. I mean, our, we're commanded to love God and love others. Okay. And by like bringing others, like by being a part of bringing others to Christ, we're okay. loving God and loving others. Okay. All right. Yeah. And in Matthew 28, 18, 20, like we were commanded to go out and share God's word with um, all the nations. Okay. Which, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I believe that God is true. The truth sets you free. I want other people to enjoy that as well. Okay, great. Anybody else? Reasons why you share Christ with people? Yeah. Uh, yeah, just building on that. Like, I've experienced the peace of God over this past year, like, so tangibly in my life. I'm like, why would I not want my close friends to experience that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I agree with all of those statements, and not any of them are wrong, but I think there's a more important or more significant reason why we should share Christ with people. And I only came across this just recently, so not that any of the answers are wrong, but I think there's, I found out there's, I think, a more significant reason why, and that's what we're going to get to here in a sec. So I want to acknowledge a couple of people, Sam Amadi and Jeff Lewis, because I borrowed heavily from their material, and you know, you're not supposed to plagiarize, so I fully acknowledge that I'm using some of the material. Uh, so... What we're going to do this, we're going to do, we're going to go through a lot of scripture, and I'm just going to talk a little more scripture, me talk less. So I need people to help me with scripture. So when I have scripture up here, uh, I need volunteers to be willing to read for us. So who wants to read this for us? Anyway, go for it. Remember the former things, those of long ago, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Okay. So God has established the end from the beginning, his purpose, and will do all that he pleases, right? And all of the time and history is really his story, right? So the question then is, well, we'll get to that in a second. Somebody else, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Awesome. Now, 
on campus, and you heard Nate talk about this earlier, that there's, you know, if you go to the biology department, I was a biology major, so they teach you about evolution, right? And they say, this is fact, it's not even a theory, when it really is a theory, but um, as questions, and I, I could go into a whole apologetic session, but that's not what this is about. Uh, we believe God created. And, you know, at, at the very least, you need to have people wrestle with, you know, what started it all. As Nate said, uh, astronomers and so forth feel like the universe is expanding, started at like a hot Big Bang, that there was a singularity. What's a singularity? Yeah. So what started that? You know, at some point you had to get to the, what was the uncaused cause, right? And eventually you run out of, well, I'm not sure, or I don't know, or well, we know God. So God created. Um, but what was the purpose of his creation? Why did he create? To glorify himself. To glorify himself. You've been looking at my notes. <laughs> no, yes, to glorify himself. So, and that's also the reason why he created us as people. That's why we do evangelism. To bring him glory. All right. Somebody read Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, the whole earth will show the knowledge and the glory of God. Well, how's that going to happen? Through people, right? So, what's God's purpose for creation? To see the world brimming with people who love him, worship him, and reflect his character and righteous rule. They image him rightly and bring glory to his name. That's what God wants to see happen, right? Somebody else, Genesis 128. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase the number of building earth and subdued. Move over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Okay, so he wants us to multiply and have dominion over all of creation. Remember what Nate said about Christ? He was supposed to have dominion over all of creation, right? We are, Christ is made in the image of God, and we are made in the image of God as well. And so this is also God's design for us. Somebody read Psalm here. Sing to, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. To marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Ascribe to the Lord the families of the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bearing an offering and coming to his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Okay. So God wants us to glorify him, give honor to his name. It's due to his name, right? Now, if it was just us, it would seem kind of selfish, like, give all glory to me, but we're not God, and we're not perfect, and we didn't create all that there is, and how incredibly vast, majestic, 
unbreathtaking. If you looked at anything, studied anything about the universe, how huge it is, how many, well, they don't even, they don't know how many stars there are. They just, you know, it's like, these are the ones we can see, but we know there's ones we probably can't see. So all we can tell you is what we can see and who knows how big it is. Maybe it's infinitely big. We don't know. But what we do know is there's like a ton of stars, right? It's big. Um, have you ever been so caught up in worship that everything else just kind of fades out and the only thing you're really focused on is, is the Lord? Have you ever had that kind of worship experience? I'm only, I've only had that a few times in my life. But I remember at a conference one time, uh, there was a speaker and different worship and different things. But then at the end, they said, we went out of a time of ministry. It was more of a charismatic uh, uh, conference. Um, and he always said, so tonight what we're going to do is we're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. And that's all he prayed. Holy Spirit, come. And there was, I don't know, several thousand people in this auditorium. And from one end of the auditorium, there was the sound of like, it's hard to describe, wind, rushing water, but it, it would flowed across the auditorium. And it made your, it gave you goosebumps. It made your like hair stand up on end is like, you know, what, what? It's, it's the presence of God filling this room. And as it swept across the room, people would burst out into to praise. Some would start weeping. Some would just spontaneously start confessing sin. I felt, and many of us just got on our face because we felt the presence of God so real. That just seemed the most appropriate position to be in is on your face before God. And I'll never forget that night. It was just, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to describe. That's what God desires for our worship of him to glorify his name because of who he is. Um, glory, let me read that. Throughout the ages, books have been written to declare the meaning of the word. It seems so transcendent to me that I cower from trying to understand Consider the following. It is the splendor, majesty, honor, and reputation of God. Glory is used to describe the power of God. The Hebrew word most often translated glory in the Old Testament is kavod, and it can refer to the weightiness, honor, and or splendor of the holy and majestic God of Scripture. God makes his glory known to the world as he manifests his character, attributes, and actions. On another level, the term speaks of a delight, boasting, and praise of God. We glorify God as God manifests himself in us through our words and actions. We glorify God as we recognize him in our obedience, confession, praise, delight, and service in the world. God's passion for his name and his glory is the supreme reason for his actions in the world. So God wants us to glorify him, bring glory to his name. And God wants people from every nation, tribe, and people to glorify him. Somebody read here this quote by John Piper. God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for himself 
from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. Therefore, let us bring our affections into line with his, and for the sake of his name, let us renounce the quest for worldly comforts and join his global purpose. So, God started this creation project, put it in the hands of Adam and Eve, and how did, how did that start go? Not well. Not well. Somebody read Genesis 3 here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Okay, so we have Adam and Eve in the garden. God says, you can enjoy everything here, but just don't eat out of this one tree. Did they know this? Was it clear to them? Were they confused on this point? No. Okay, it's very clear to them. So, Satan shows up, tempts Eve, right? Says, oh, this will be, this is, tastes good. This will help you, you know, be like God. It, it's pleasing. And she eats. So here's a, I'm going to segue just a second. This is for you men. I do this in a men's talk, but. So my question to you guys is where was Adam when all this was going down? She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam was there the whole time. What did, Ad, what, what did Adam say when he was being tempted? Nothing. Nothing. What did Adam do when she was being tempted? Nothing. And this is the problem today with men. We're passive. A godly man speaks truth and acts righteously. Anyway, that's another talk. But, uh, yeah, they get off to a rocky start here. But God does not give up on his plan. He just reroutes the path to get there. So God promises to raise up from Eve a seed that will vanquish the serpent who tempted them to sin. And this seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Somebody reads Genesis 3 here. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and hers. You will crush your head and you will strike a seal. And what is the author? Who's the author referring to here? Christ. Yes, Jesus. All right. So the seed will do what Adam failed to achieve. This new Adam, as Paul refers to Jesus, will defeat the serpent. He will restore what Adam lost and he will accomplish God's purposes for creation. 
put the creation project back on track. And he will uh, create men and women around the world who will worship God, who will image him rightly, and live in the presence of God. All right, let's go to Abraham. God calls Abraham and promises to bless him and use him to bless the nations. He will use Abraham and his seed. He will use Abraham and his children to bring the peoples and the nations back to himself. And this begins to work. Over the next 400 years, this new plan of blessing Abraham and Abraham blessing the nations begins to work. Somebody read Genesis 12 there. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All right, so not just Abraham, not just Abraham's family is gonna get blessed, but the whole world is gonna be blessed through Abraham. Abraham will just be his instrument, right? So how is he gonna bless Abraham? What's that? Kids, Kids, yeah. And what did God want Abraham to do? Okay, what else? What's that? Reproduce. Reproduce, yeah, what else? Bless the other nations, right? Not just keep it to yourself. He, he was given this treasure, right? And he wants you to share that with others, right? But yeah, he definitely wanted him to have faith. So the question is, he, the same question is for us. God has blessed us. I don't know if you figured this out yet, but you're all blessed. Some of you have been outside of the country, right? Is all you have? Where have you been? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, did they have as many access to resources and education like that you have? Not not everybody gets to go to USC, right? That, that's that's a high privilege, right? Uh, most people in the world don't have a car. How many of you got? Y'all got cars, or most of you? Some don't. Anyway, you've been blessed. And so having this blessing, having this treasure, not just material things, but you've also been blessed with the knowledge of Christ, right? The good news. And so you need to share that just like Abraham needs to share. All right. But let's talk about Abraham's faith. So when he, when he was told this by God, that you'll become a great nation, does anybody know how long it was before they had their child twenty five years it wasn't until twenty five years later that Abraham and Sarah had Isaac have you ever had to wait for something for twenty five years so when you see Abraham and Sarah kind of like well, they tried some other things that didn't work out so well. But God was faithful and he wanted them to have faith 
because she was old. They were beyond childbearing age, right? Um, and God wants us to have faith, just like Abraham. It's Romans 5. Can we read that? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And then John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So just as God wanted Abraham to have faith, he wants us to have faith, right? All right, somebody read this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. All right, so Abraham, or Abram, God comes shows, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to give you a new name. Because in the Bible, names had a real significance, right? And he gives him this new name, Abraham. And what does Abraham mean? Father of many. Father of many nations. Why did he change his name? New identity. New identity. I don't want you to forget the promise I've given you, right? That you're going to be a father of many nations. You know, when you're in that 25-year stretch, you might be tempted to forget this, right? Just think of your name. So, anyway, the Jewish nation uh, grows. Uh, there's a famine. They all move down to Egypt. Uh, they're blessed through um, Joseph, who saves them from the famine. But then after that passes, more time goes on and new pharaohs come into power and they forgot why the Jews were there in the first place. And they decide, well, here we get all these foreigners living with us. Let's enslave them. And so they make slaves of them. Uh, so it seems like this whole project is like coming, it's got problems of moving forward because now God's chosen people have become enslaved, right? Um, but God hasn't left them and hasn't forgotten them and has a plan for them. What, see, what, what was Exodus thinking? Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Okay, so in the midst of the kind of their darkest hour, they're enslaved. God saying, I have a plan for you to be my priest to the nations. What does that mean, to be a priest to the nations? Well, in the Old Testament, the priest was the person who would go between you and God. So if you had a nation of priests, they would go between you all of you and God. Yes. And that's exactly what God wants to do with you. You are known as God's priests, his ambassadors, right? All right, let's continue on. So we move through history, Israel and its kings. God, blessing to the nations through Israel is seen then through the reigns of David and Solomon. All the promises God made to Abraham 
are going to come to fruition now through David and the line of kings that are his descendants. And David gets this. He understands this. He understands that God will be glorified among the nations as he blesses Israel in general and David in particular. So, let me read 1 Chronicles here. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. One of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. All right. So, God gives his promise to, to David, and then it goes, it's passed on to Solomon. And what happens then? This program of Israel being blessed and being a blessing to other nations really begins to bear fruit under King Solomon. Because peoples of all nations begin to come to visit King Solomon because he was known as being the wisest person in the world. And he had great wealth and great riches, great wisdom. And so all the nations are coming now. Let me read First Kings for us. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight, and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east, and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including even the Asherites, wiser than Heman, Kalkul, and Darda, the sons of Mahol and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hypsop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So here, Solomon's biologist. He knows about all the creatures, and he teaches about them. And people are coming all around to hear Solomon's great wisdom. But, well, we're going to just power through this for time. Let's go on to Psalms. So Israel then was a light to the nations so that God could save the nations. God's Psalms reflect his heart. Somebody read Psalm 67. Would God be gracious to you and bless you and make his face shine upon you? In your ways may be known on earth, and your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. May you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will hear. Okay, do you start to see a pattern here? We have all the nations, we have God wanting to have them blessed and have them bring him glory, right? So we're seeing this pattern. So the pattern for the kings of Israel was to rule with justice and longevity over the earth as God's representatives to bring glory to him and to see his glory fill the earth. All right, so we're gonna read this, Psalm 72. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. Yeah, quite. Okay. 
Uh, he will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him, and all nations will serve him. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. All right. But, so we're, we're on track again. God's plan. He's using the kings of Israel to bless all the nations, but then they get off track. How do they get off track? Well, Solomon starts well, but he ends poorly. So, as the saying goes, so goes the king, so goes the people. He's drawn away by his wives to worship and follow other gods, and the subsequent kings of Israel largely fail as well. So, I'm going to read the first kings here. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. So, we have these kings of Israel that now, instead of following and worshiping and bringing glory to God, are turning and following other gods, right? And um, <clears throat> these other uh, religions, these other faiths, uh, engage in detestable practices, such as mass orgies, child sacrifice. They would literally burn their own children in, 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 as a sacrifice in a fire. Divination of uh, uh, the worship of false gods and other things that were just an abomination of God. They broke their covenant with God. That covenant God made with them, they broke it, turned their back on God. And so God judges them. And through the nations of Assyria and Babylonia, they come in and conquer Israel and later Judah and take them off into exile. And again, this plan of God's seems all of a sudden now to come to an end again. Um, we're just going to, for time, we're going to speed through. But it's just... So it's all hope lost. Now that uh, Israel is essentially gone, the, the leaders and the best artisans and so forth have been taken out in exile. Only the, the poor people have been left behind. And other people have been brought in. And it's, Jerusalem is in ruins, having uh, been sacked by the Babylonians and, and, and uh, the walls torn down. And so it's a wreck. And the people are gone. Remember, God said, this is my treasured possession, who I'm going to bless all the nations. And that's like come to an end. Well, but it's not an end, right? The prophets speak and not only pronounce judgment, 
but also hope. For after chastising and punishing Israel through its defeat of its enemies and then the exile, God will rescue them and reestablish them. God won't just rescue and redeem Israel from exile, but it also include the Gentiles. Assyrians and Egypt, Egyptians will worship along with Israel. So this is the this is to me is the like amazing thing. So if you have arch enemies, right? Who, what would be an example of some arch enemies? <laughs> okay. Uh, right now, Ukraine and Russia. I mean, they're killing each other, right? Arch enemies. Uh, maybe in the past, uh, in, in different wars, people have been fighting with each other. Arch enemies, killing each other. And now, read what God says of how he's going to bring these arch enemies together to worship God. Isaiah 19. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Syrians will go to Egypt, the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Syrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Syria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handwork, and work, and Israel, my inheritance. Because these people are fighting. I mean, when, when uh, Israel uh, was in trouble, they asked the Egyptians to come to the rescue. The Egyptians showed up. Uh, the Assyrians crushed them. And uh, so they were fighting. And then eventually Assyria, you know, attacked Israel and defeated them. But eventually they're all going to come together, worshiping God no longer as enemies. So God will save the nations now through a new Adam. and a new Israel, the servant of the Lord. He will do this by being stricken, smitten, and die on their behalf. He would suffer their punishment so as to bring them back into the kingdom of God. Okay, somebody read Isaiah 42. Then Isaiah said, Surely the servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stop. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See the former things that have taken place, and you as I declare. For they spring into being, I am Okay, so God says he's going to raise up a new Adam. And then Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. Who is holy by message? Who has the arm of the Lord? You grow before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing of experience that we should desire. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, very familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men had their cases, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, that we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his own. 
And who's this referring to? Jesus. Jesus. Return to the book of Matthew. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See the lineage? This is still happening. This plan is now coming back alive through now Jesus, a descendant, right, of David, a descendant of Abraham. So Jesus will bring all nations under his gracious reign and fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Be king who leads his people to be a blessing to the nations and a way of their salvation. Somebody read Matthew 2, 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? He saw his star in the east and had come to worship him. Do you know every nativity scene is a testimony to God's heart for the nations? Because here we see the nations coming to worship Jesus. The Magi, they weren't Jews. They were from Persia. They were astrologers. They weren't people of God. Yet they came to worship the God. And already we see this plan of God's to have the nations come and worship him, starting to uh, come to fruition through even the birth of Christ. Then we see uh, other people who are non-Jewish come to faith in Christ. In fact, this centurion, Jesus heals his servant, and he proclaims that all the nations will sit at the table in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to read this. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, the centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great, great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So the centurion, he's a Roman soldier, right? Over a hundred men. He's not Jewish. But he has faith that Jesus can heal his servant. And Jesus proclaims that he has great faith. And then he says... Peoples of all nations will come and sit at the table together, right? He heals a Canaanite woman. The Canaanites were enemies of the Israelites, right? They were the people that were supposed to, like, kick out of the land when they were came in to receive the promised land. And this Canaanite woman comes, and Jesus heals her. You look at the feeding of the 5,000. They're primarily Jewish people. But then immediately after that, the next feeding of 4,000, those are Gentiles. And so Jesus is showing that he's not showing partiality now. He's showing that all nations uh, are uh, welcome to salvation. And he says in John 12, 32, but I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He was going to draw all men from all nations to himself. He, he exhorts his disciples, right? The Great Commission. 
You're familiar with that, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And so where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. He succeeds by using his own people, initially his disciples, but then the, then the early church. And the uh, people of God began to expand among all nations. Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes down. But who's there? there there's a group of disciples. And who else is there? People from every nation are there for Pentecost. All right, somebody read Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound of blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest with each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God fearing Jews from every nation in heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came down in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Syrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and Congress, Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, What does this mean? So we have at Pentecost all these nations there. The Holy Spirit shows up. A sound like I heard in that auditorium. The sound of a wind blowing through. And all these people begin hearing the gospel in their own language. God's translating for them. And people of every nation are coming to Christ. Later, we see uh, God transport in Philip to show up where this Ethiopian is, climb up into his chariot, share the good news, and he comes to Christ. He's, he's, from, he's an African. He's from Africa. We see in Antioch, a church, a church starts that's all Gentiles. That was in that church, uh, those believers in Christ were first known as Christians. So the name Christian was first mentioned in this church in Antioch of Gentiles. It wasn't, wasn't Jewish converts, it was Gentiles. Then Paul starts on his missionary journeys, right? He starts going into Asia Minor, which is now uh, Turkey, and planting churches, sharing the gospel, planting churches, and so forth. Um, and uh, we see the the gospel is spreading. People are coming to faith. And then in Romans, you know what Roman, the book of Romans is? We all know it because it's this big thing on theology, right? Big book on theology. But you, but you know what the book of Romans really is? That's some of what he talks about. But what it really is, is a, it's a missionary support letter. It's a missionary support letter. He wants to go to Spain and he needs help, funds to get there. And so he writes the Christians in Rome and says, I'm coming, I'm coming your way. Can you help me get to Spain? Because 
That's the unreached peoples. We don't, they haven't heard the gospel yet. Read Romans 15 here somebody. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, this is I have been longing for many years to see you. I to do so while you're staying. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist you on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. And so <clears throat> he does go to Rome. And then as the gospel continues to spread in Colossians 1 6, it says, All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and understand, understood God's grace and that's all truth. Before, the Jews and Gentiles were enemies, and now they are one in Christ. Believers who have come together. Uh, I'm going to read Ephesians here. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. And then in the end, a great multitude will gather from every nation, tribe, people, and language to worship God. Come in, read Revelation 7 here. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, and in front of the land. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to your God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So here we see a grand worship service, right? And there's people from every tribe, na nation, language. They're all there. And they're all worshiping Jesus together. And this is exactly what God's plan was from the very beginning. People from every, all over the world, worshiping him, bringing him glory and honor. And that is why God has a heart for the nations, to see all the people rightly image him, bearing his image, sharing the good news among the nations that all may come before him and worship him in glory. So, any questions? Now that you're all half asleep. <laughs> all that fresh air come in a warm room. Yes. Um, so I came to this uh, workshop because I study real estate, which is very related to business, and I'm yeah. trying to. I'm, I want to help people in other countries, and another way is also bringing the gospel with me. Something I have to answer those. Why help people in, the, in another place where there are so many people here, especially in LA that don't know the gospel? And I feel like I have the best opportunity to help people there as opposed to going to another country. Um, so, if you could just speak to in what circumstances it's right to go to another country to help other people spread the gospel, appreciate that. Great question. And it's not either or, it's both. 
right? We need people here reaching people of LA. We need people overseas reaching people there the gospel. If you look at though pure statistics, most of the resources and people that will share the gospel are here. And there's very few there. Um, back when I got a real heart for missions, uh, I heard a, 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 a speaker say that 95% of the trained Christian workers were ministering to 5% of the population. And so if you look at it, just pure statistics, there's a lot of people there that don't have a Bible, don't have a church nearby, don't have any kind of evangelical witness. And so they don't have any opportunity. And that's why we emphasize trying to go to the unreached, the least reached, the unreached, because they don't have the opportunity that's here. So it's, it's not either or, it's both. But the need there is much greater because the resources are much less. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. When you say there, like, what do you mean? Because like the rest of the world, like there's a lot of places that could be there. Sure. So I'm primarily talking about what's known as the 1040 window. If you look at on a, a globe, uh, the 10, 10 degrees and 40 degrees latitude, that band, most of the unreached people live in that part of the world, India, China, uh, the Stans, through that section of the world, uh, the Middle East. That's where most of the unreached people live. Um, and so uh, I, I got a whole nother talk on reaching the unreached, but um, there's the, the difference in how few resources go there compared to here, it's phenomenal. So let's, let's take giving, for example. Um, so every dollar that's given, like in church, or given to Christian causes, like some you put a dollar in the offering plate, how much of that is used to reach the unreached of the world? What do you think? Out of a dollar, what percentage? What percentage? Less than a penny. Less than a penny. Less than 1%. There is more money spent on Halloween costumes for pets than is spent on reaching the unreached in the world. If you can believe that. Um, I don't know yeah, about sure. Wouldn't, wouldn't like a church use the money, like most of the money to help the people directly around them instead of helping like people miles and miles away in like a country that is like on the opposite side of the world? So wouldn't it make sense? Sure, to use, like, sure. Of it? But I guess my, my point is, Yes, but we're doing so little to help those over there. We should be doing more. Mm -hmm. Granted, we're going to do, yeah, you're going to minister mostly to the people around you. But if we don't have a, a missionary heart and put our efforts to doing that, we're, we're not going to reach them. Right. And that was the, what the Great Commission was all about. I don't, I, and I, I mean, I've helped start churches. I've been in churches for a long time. I, I feel like if a, if a church doesn't have a missionary heart, it's not really functioning the way God created it to be because God created it to fill the Great Commission. So it should be not only strengthening its members, but reaching new people for Christ and not just locally, but globally. 
It's, it's so none of this is either or. It's, it's, it's both and for all of it, right? And really, it comes down to numbers, just resources. How much resources you got? When you're sending less than a penny out of every dollar to reach the unreached, it's just a trickle, right? Yeah. But then isn't a big barrier the fact that mission trips are so expensive? Maybe they're more like thousands of dollars to go on a mission trip, and so that's why fewer people do them. Versus like, it's a lot, it's an easier sell to say, every week I'll drop a dollar in the offering plate. And sure, that'll be huge over the course of a lifetime, but like, isn't that an issue with how missions trips are handled in the United States rather than like a misappropriation of funds? So, <clears throat> Have you ever heard of the incarnational principle? I have not. Okay. The incarnational principle, uh, I mean, Jesus is the example of that. So God, wanting to communicate the gospel to us, actually came down in human form to do it. So he was incarnated into a human form, right? That's the incarnational principle. In other words, the gospel is thread, spread from people to people. So to spread the gospel overseas, if we just throw money at it, it won't work. We have to have people to, sh to carry that message. And yeah, it is expensive, but without the people carrying the message, the message won't get there. It, you gotta have the people. There's some, uh, years ago, there was certain denominations that thought, well, we could do better. We'll just send them money to the people who are already there and uh, we'll get more bang for our buck. But they found the opposite to happen. They were, they were seeing less evangelistic activity because it affected it in a lot of ways. I mean, the people locally lost the vision because they weren't going and seeing it. And then there weren't people carrying the message. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, God has chosen to use people to communicate his message to people. And so, hence, we have missions and mission trips. And yes, some, and I mean, that's why in, in One Lake, we have these discussions all the time. We want to be effective and not just have them as vacations, right? We're not just sending people over to take a vacation. We're intentionally trying to train and equip people to share their faith on these trips. And uh, so, and we work with partners who are already there, long-term missionaries, who are already trying to reach the people and we come alongside them and increase their efforts. And then after we leave, they can continue to follow up on any of the fruit that was produced while we were there. So for example, uh, when I went in 1980 to Zambia, we spent 10 weeks in Zambia. Uh, we traveled around the country sharing the gospel, having little discipleship clinics and churches. And then we let, and we left and we, we saw Great results when we were there. We saw about 1,500 people come to Christ. Years later, we ran into a missionary, and this is before the internet and so forth, so we had lost touch. It was about 10 years later, we ran into a missionary in the sem uh, seminary library at Fort Worth. We were down for a conference. It was like, oh, hey, how you doing? Ed, hadn't seen we said, So, Ed, what happened after we left? Because we never heard what happened. He goes, oh. Well, the young people of our country saw you as young people, college students, come and share Christ. And, and they, they, they realized we can do this also. 
And so in the 10 years after that, they started 150 churches in Zambia. And so that's what we want to see happen. We want to be almost like a catalyst. Well, one, we want to see unreached people come to Christ, but then we want to be a catalyst to help them begin to reach their own people. Yeah. Yeah, if and I, may, if I, may, I may add to that. Yeah. Uh, one thing that um, I'm also seeing on the field, it's like the idea of like business as missions. So I think a lot of the times when we think about missions, we might think about short-term mission trip where you have to raise like a couple thousand dollars by plane tickets and all that. But what we're seeing more and more happening is also for like people like you, where you have really good professions, where God opened doors for you to work overseas. And you can still do missions that way as well. It, the, like doing mission work doesn't mean like you have to put on a name that I'm a missionary now, right? And then I go overseas as a full-time mission. Uh, in fact, that is actually getting more and more difficult because especially the 1040 window where visas are getting harder and harder to get as a missionary yeah. in there. So what we see, it's like a lot of people actually using their profession to get into the country, they actually have a real job, but that became the platform they are uh, uh, available to uh, relate to people and evangelize that way. An example will be, we have some really business savvy people, like business major, right? I don't know if there's any business majors here, right? Real estate, right? Like going overseas, right? And help the local people to build businesses, right? They do business consulting and all that. And that became a supernatural platform for them to witness to them because through dealing with business, like sharing family situations, that's when they start really connecting with the local people. So I just want to like, also like kind of cast a wide net in terms of like what mission can look like, you know, in addition to like short-term mission trips, so. Yeah. It's dinner time. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. And I do pray that you would help us, Lord, just grasp, uh, your, your heart for the nations and uh, you desire to see uh, worshipers uh, come out of every nation, tribe, and language. And Lord, help us to be a part of seeing that happen uh, as we share the good news of Christ uh, around the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.